thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription, 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Those who tell stories survive. So says Edith Harkness, our narrator in the opening lines of Sarah Hall's Burnt Coat. It's equally true to say of Edith that those who survive tell stories. For although we quickly learn that Edith might not have long left to live, the urge to recount, to set down, to try to make sense of it all has not left her. So we follow the story of a mother's devastating illness and the lives that must be rebuilt in its wreckage. The story of a sculptor learning her craft and honing her extraordinary vision. The story of a relationship forged in the flames of a burning world. And the story of a virus that upended everything. Birdcote is unquestionably a novel of and for our times. Called Dark and Brilliant by Sarah Moss and A Masterpiece by Daisy Johnson, much like the Japanese burnt timber technique Edith uses in her work, Birdcote leaves readers scarred but fortified, more ready to face life's elements. Sarah Hall, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's my pleasure. Um, I often play a little game when I'm reading novels, which is to try and identify the first image or the first turn of phrase that provided the spark or the seed of the of the book. Um, although I'm going to confess that with Burnt Coat, there are just so many stark and sort of essential images that sit in a kind of perfect constellation with each other. So, for example, there's Naomi's illness, there's Hecky, there's the love story, there's the virus, there's Burnt Coat itself, um, all of which I hope we'll have time to speak about. But I, I, I really felt quite stumped in my, uh, in my little game. So I was wondering, would you be able to begin by talking a little bit about how this story began for you and how it grew into the novel that, we, that we're reading today? Yes, absolutely. And um, the first line of the book, which you've read out, was the first thing that came to me, one of the first things, um, this sentence that seemed to arrive and didn't make perfect sense in its arrival. Um, Obviously, it makes more sense if it's inverted. Uh, But um, it was a starting point. And I don't know if that was my response to the current situation. The writing of the book actually took place um, during our first lockdown, so Mm. March 2020. And I sat down and started work very early in the morning on the first day of that lockdown. Mm -hmm. And this sentence was just sort of floating around the room and I grabbed hold of it and it felt in some ways, not like an anchor, but, uh, but a thing I needed to get hold of and make an inquiry into. It was going to somehow be helpful to me in the current situation, but also Mm -hmm. seemed like a very good starting place. If you, if one was about to embark on an artistic endeavor, in relation to a pandemic. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like a short story in some ways. The first sentence often becomes an operating key for the rest of the text. And that's certainly what happened with Burnt Coat and the first line of it. 
Mm. Now that's really fascinating. The the context of the composition. So um, I mean, there have been quite a few novels that are starting to come out or have come out recently that were sort of composed during the first lockdown or in the months that followed it, and some of them have a lot to do with the pandemic. Some have nothing to do with it. But you said you began on the very first day of the of the lockdown, and I just want to unpick that a little bit. So did it? How firstly, how long did it take you to to write the novel? Was it sort of contained in the, at, at the other end? Did it finish on, for example, the last day of a lockdown or at a particular moment in the the last eighteen months that we've lived? And also, could you just talk a little bit about how that felt, kind of almost writing into the void? Because we had no idea at that moment how things would transpire, how serious the situation would be, how long it would last. That must have been quite a quite a disorienting experience for you. We had no idea. That's right. But in some ways, I I found that helpful in terms of writing. Um, I've likened the feeling of that first lockdown, or certainly my feeling within it on the first day, to being a bit like a first responder in the rural valleys where I'm from. Mm. Um, you know, emergency servants, emergency services often can't get out to people in trouble quick enough um, mm. because the, you know, the road's very narrow, it's rural, it's it's inaccessible and remote. Um, and so there are locally trained people who will go down and be a first responder, respond mm. initially to the situation they find, whether that's a heart attack or an accident or something else. And of course, I'm not a trained first responder. I, I wouldn't liken myself to somebody with medical knowledge who's, who's actually doing something very heroic um, in that situation. But I felt like I wanted to get to work. There was mm. this in some ways, very disquieting feeling on the first morning. It, everything was eerily silent, no traffic. Yeah. Uh, everything had stopped, almost like that big, heavy snowfall feeling where things are dampened, everything's suddenly gone blind. You don't know where anything familiar is. And, and it felt like everything was sort of being taken away and blanketed by a catastrophe of which we knew very little at that point. Mm -hmm. There was so much fear and speculation. Um of course, because it was this was pre-vaccines um, and nobody really knew the financial implications of what would happen. Nobody really understood how the virus itself was working in the body at that point, how serious contracting the disease might be. Mm -hmm. And um, let me let me interrogate this sentence before I say it. I'm not ashamed to say that I found that very stimulating and I wanted mm. to act. I wanted to do something. Mm. writing a book is obviously questionably helpful in that situation <laughs> but it's the thing that I can do um, and so I wanted to get on with it there was also uh, a part of my brain that was very angry because I'm a single parent and it's it's tough enough finding the time to work around around being a, an available um, I hope uh, committed parent mm. um, and this felt like one more thing so now there's homeschooling as well really you know and, uh, <laughs> and those it, it really was a question of getting up at five or six a.m getting a couple of hours in in those mm. those quiet moments and I suppose that was my pushback in a way. It was like, no, 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 not one more thing to try and stop me. I'm already challenged enough. No. Yeah. And I just got on with it. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that um, you felt uh, the sort of, sort, of, sort, of, sort of stimulating, kind of inspired by, um, by, this, um, by this situation, because that's something we find in, um, in Edith in the book as well. So Edith... Um, there's this kind of it's not it's I wouldn't say an ambivalence towards the viol towards the sort of the the negative aspects of the violence, but there's definitely this kind of engagement with 
um i suppose the the way that these these crises can push people to action and transform people potentially for the better that's right and um in some ways edith is primed for the disaster because she's been brought up uh, with a set of circumstances that made childhood very different if not non-existent you know she um her mother gets very ill when she's young and might not be able to keep her and look after her um in the end they do stay together but what it means is that edith has to learn how to be very practical early on she has an mm-hmm. accelerated uh period of not growing up exactly but becoming capable able to do things because her mother has lost the ability um, to do many of those things and has to relearn. She ha- she suffers a brain injury and she mm-hmm. has to relearn how to write and speak and walk and, and, and everything and operate in the world. So I think in some ways, if anybody's going to be able to cope with a disaster, it's Edith. And I, I like that about her. I knew very early on she was going to be somebody that could uh, t- take on the challenge, n- not mm-hmm. perfectly uh, by any stretch. And she questions her- herself um, during the pandemic. She she questions her abilities to, to care for others, for example. Mm-hmm. And long after the pandemic, as one of the, the few survivors with longevity, she has been uh, charged with creating a national monument to the tragedy for the millions that have died during the pandemic. And she finds that very hard, that level mm-hmm. of responsibility. So while she does take it on, um, you know, she finds the situation enormously difficult. But I do yeah. think as a character, she, uh, she, she's been trained from an early age to, to, to not give up under those circumstances, mm-hmm. to not hide away, to find a way through things. Is that separate for you from her her training? Is that separate for you from her temperament as a, as an artist as well? So so Edith is a sculptor, and we'll come on to talk more about her mother in a moment. But her mother Naomi is a novelist. Um, and one thing I was put in mind of um, while reading about uh, Edith, and in certain ways Naomi's sort of reaction to to situations, was this. A story I remember, and this writer will go remain nameless, but a, a writer, a friend of mine, who told me that once after he a relationship ended for him, and he was he was devastated by it, and he was in in floods of tears, and then he caught sight of himself in the mirror, and realized that what he was doing was essentially building up material for future sort of future works, and so there was this kind of. Uh, this kind of double-edged existence to to writers and artists that you could kind of when you are faced with with horror with uh, with tragedy that you kind of know in the back of your mind that it will be grist to the to the artistic mill if you like um do you think that is something that that feeds into um sort of Edith and maybe Naomi's capacity for survival that whatever happens to them, they'll be able to transform it into art. Yes, in some ways. And uh, I think at one point in the novel, uh, and the novel is, of course, Edith's life. She's looking mm-hmm. back over over it and making sense of, of the memories and the kind of formative parts of her life. She does say um, everything is art, even thought. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose coming back to the first line again, those who tell stories survive, is it that notion um, of how we perceive the world, enabling us to get through these situations. You know, there mm-hmm. is the fact of the world. There's the kind of real table in front of me that I can touch. Um, and then there's my perception of the table. There's my recreation mm-hmm. of the table in my imagination or my memory. And 
lots of and most human beings all human beings do that uh we we filter everything through the self through our experiences through our belief systems our, our cultural experiences and we make of it a version of it if you see what mm. i mean and that is being questioned by edith all the way through uh certainly she starts out as an artist quite young in life you know she's building giant creations in the garden at the age mm -hmm. of 12 and 13 um and it's interesting to know where uh the artistic sensibility and the ability to be an artist um, and to, to and the kind of being in the world and how you absorb the world all dovetail mm. for an artist, for a writer. I certainly think there's some other sense or an additional sense or, or an ability to imbibe the world, mainline it in a creative way mm. that will then recalibrate and come out in a creative way I, i've seen this a lot in writers and artists There's, there is that sense as you describe your friend crying in the mirror and, and and thinking okay well this what is the creative version of you crying in the mirror this is something that's already being ground down in the creative mill inside mm. me to therefore come out um, and be used in some way of course that's that's what artists and writers do that's what makers do Mm. Um, and certainly e e Edith has that. I would say that I probably do too. You know, there are times when I've, I've thought I'm, I'm going through this experience and one hopes to be present in the moment during that experience, especially if it's emotionally or, or, or intellectually very important. Mm. Um, but yeah, there is that, that secondary part that the voice of the thoughts, which is actually the voice of the writer, ultimately, uh, one version of how something might be written down, mm. thinking or saying or, or, or um, intuiting a kind of written up version of what's happening, a creative version of what's happening. Mm. And, and, and I think it also gives rise to certain kind of quite stark uh, observations in the book. So the one that that I've noted down here is um, is when Edith is talking about the the virus. And she says, um, I'll say it again. It was, it is perfect, perfectly composed, star-like and timed for the greatest chaos. There's this is kind of um, the, the recognition that in this thing, which is causing so much pain and so much destruction, that there is beauty seems to be something which um, I don't know. I suppose it is perhaps her artistic temperament that that led her to it. Likewise, um, when she she's talking about the Naomi's brain scan. Um, she describes the hemorrhage as like a rose and says it's completely horrible and and beautiful too. And so there's just there's something really, I think, fascinating about that sort of, yeah, that capacity to see beauty in horror, I suppose. Yeah, the aesthetics of, of, of anything visual or the kind of metrics of a thing. I think uh, probably the line about the virus came partly from the idea that Edith is an artist. How would she mm. regard this thing? Especially, you know, as with COVID, we probably now recognise the picture of the virus. It has of become course. a visual item for us. But also, and that came out of the research I did with um, a virologist at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, uh, and I was quite carefully talking through viruses uh, with this very brilliant scientist, and she was incredibly helpful. You know, the idea of, is it alive? Is it dead? What is it? What is a virus? How do they operate? How do they go through these four stages that will get them to the point where they're transmissible between humans? How do they jump from an animal reservoir to perhaps another one or into the kind of, or into the human uh, domain? Uh, and they have to be very good at what they do. They, you know, they mm. have to hone themselves. They, they become these, these incredibly skillfully operating things, whatever they are. 
And so um, in some ways, like an athlete might be described as as perfect and beautiful, you know, performing this, um, you, you know, whatever movement that they have to do or maneuver or jump or goal or whatever. There is a sense that this organism, this being, this thing might have to become superlative and matchless in order to do the job it does once it gets to the point of being able to create a global pandemic. When I was eight, my mother died and Naomi arrived. My father still lived with us then. We had a house at the edge of town on one of the steep streets that lead up to the beacon from which the interior mountains can be seen. It was a few days before Christmas. The summits were snow-capped and the air was cold and paper-thin. We were shopping for gifts and my father had brought the car. The doll's house I wanted was very large, too big to carry, so I was sure it would be bought. My mother had been complaining all day of a headache. Every shop we went into made her wince. These lights are so bright. She kept dragging her feet and sitting down, rubbing her forehead. We'd been to the old civic library and, unusually for her, she'd borrowed no books. My father was annoyed. Why did you come out with a migraine? Do you want to go home? On the walk back to the car, she stumbled. My father was walking a little ahead to start the car and turn on the heating. He did not see. She lost her balance and fell to the pavement, kneeling for a moment in the slush and then leaning over and sitting. Adam, she called. Where is Edith? Is she there? She sounded very calm. Her words were slow. Adam, I can't see her. I thought she was starting an interesting game. She could be very silly and playful. I'm not over here, mummy, I said, walking round behind her. And I'm not over here. She held up a hand, carefully touched the air. I can't see. I squatted down in front of her, stared, moved my head around. Her eyes did not follow. One iris seemed like a black planet. Dad! I called. My father walked back to us. Move out of the way, he said. What's going on, Naomi? Why are you sitting there getting filthy? She raised her arms and my father took hold and hauled her up. When he let go, she swayed, sagged again. He walked her across the car park, opened the door of the Volvo and helped her onto the back seat. With every step, she lost power, like a toy running out of battery. She lay quietly on the red leather, her eyes wide and empty. Get in the front, he told me. This was the first time I'd been allowed in the passenger seat. I clicked the metal seatbelt into its lock. It was baggy, set for an adult. My father started the car and drove unhurriedly, stopping at the traffic lights. For some reason, I thought we were just going home. I kept turning to look behind. My mother was breathing rapidly, her eyelids beginning to droop. She tried to talk, but the words were babyish sounds. There was a clicking in her gullet. I looked again, and her face was in a pool of lumpy fluid. Mum's been sick. She's being sick. 
Okay, thank you, Edith, my father said. I was not scared. Nobody in the car seemed scared by what was happening. Now turn round and sit down. He drove to the infirmary, pulled up to the main emergency door and put on the handbrake. Stay here, he said to me. I want to come in too. No, he said. But I want to come in with mummy. He reached across the gear stick and smacked me on the top of the legs, an awkward pluffing whack that stung through my skirt and tights. He got out of the car, walked into the hospital and came out with a porter and a wheelchair. They slid Naomi from the back seat, lifted her into the chair and I watched her being pushed inside, her body listing over. My eyes were watering, the tears refracted everything and for a moment there were two leaning women in two wheelchairs. I blinked and one was gone. The car smelled sour. The passenger window bloomed coldly under my palm. An ambulance pulled up next to the car and the paramedics unloaded a stretcher. When my father came back, he did not apologise. I said nothing as he moved the car to a parking space. He steered me silently inside the building, his hand pressing between my shoulder blades. I was given children's books by the receptionist. You look like a clever girl, she said. I bet you can read these all by yourself. I listened to her speaking to the doctors, speaking to my father, speaking into the phone. They were planning to move my mother to another hospital as quickly as possible. While my father was in the toilet, I slipped over to the receptionist and asked if I could see my mother. Oh, no, Poppet, you can't. She's very sick. They have to do an operation. What's wrong with her? I asked. Is it her headache? The receptionist nodded looking pleased as if I'd answered a school question right. Yes, Poppet, she's got a blood clot on her brain. Oh, here we are. The sound of the helicopter approaching was unmistakable. The furious blades, air thumping beside the building as it landed. Suddenly, I realised everything was serious. Helicopters were used to rescue climbers who'd fallen from the ridges. They were used to save lives. For a minute I thought we would all be going and I was lit by excitement and fear I'd never flown before. But almost immediately the helicopter lifted again, even louder it seemed, its rotors whining, a blaze of deafening noise. Soon it was a faraway drone. My father took me home, made toast and asked me to go to bed. I need you to be a big girl, Edith. I lay looking at the luminous stars stuck to my bedroom ceiling. In the morning, he told me my mother had been airlifted to Newcastle and a surgery performed. She would have to spend several weeks in hospital. It was a very complicated operation. They've had to do some things that mean she won't be herself for a while. She might not even know who you are. He was wearing the same clothes as the day before. His eyes were puffy. His whole face seemed puffy, the features gathering closely inside it. Yes, she will know who I am, I said. He shook his head. She's unconscious. Christine's mum's going to look after you today. We spent Christmas, just the two of us, miserably eating mince pies. The tree was undecorated, only its smell was festive and reassuring. There was no doll's house. My father had hastily bought me a coat, the tag still in, 
On Boxing Day, he drove over to the hospital again. I was made a fuss of by Christine's parents, given chocolates and milk. Christine asked if my mum was going to die. I lied and told her I'd ridden in the helicopter. When my father arrived to pick me up, I heard him speaking quietly to Christine's mother as I collected my shoes and coat. It's like Frankenstein, he said. It's absolutely horrendous. Every few days, he made the journey across the country. I kept asking when I could see her. Not yet, was all he'd say. She's not well. She doesn't remember. On my first visit to the rehabilitation centre, my mother was sitting at a table, drawing a picture. There was a strip of stubble in her hair, containing a vast, raised caterpillar scar. One side of her face seemed pulled back and lifted. I stood in the doorway, too scared to approach. Go on, my father said. You want to come? I'll get a coffee. He was not looking at my mother and hadn't said hello to her. He walked away down the corridor. My mother didn't seem to notice me. She had on pale blue pyjamas with white snowflakes that made her look younger. A nurse entered the room behind her. A nurse entered the room behind me. Oh, you must be Edith. Your mummy's been missing you. Come in. She walked me to the table, pulled out a chair for me. I sat. The nurse gently placed a scarf round my mother's head, covering the curved purple welt and tied it at the back. There we go. But I couldn't unsee the awful wound. The picture was childish, a tree or a figure. My mother seemed confused about the line she was making, which direction it should continue in. I took the pencil from her. She looked at me. Her expression was blank and curious, like a bird assessing an item on the ground. I finished the line, drew a nest on the branch with spotted eggs inside. Her mouth opened and closed a few times, popping wetly. With concentrated, almost physical effort, she said, Ah, na, me. I looked at the nurse, who smiled. What is she saying? I asked. The nurse put her hands on my mother's shoulders, stopped the swaying motion that had begun to increase. She's introducing herself. She's saying, I'm Naomi. So, um, so, so let's, let's just talk a little bit about Naomi, so um, Edith's mother. Um, now, early, early on in the book, and this, this is one, one moment where I had to, I, I had advanced about a page. I had to go back and check that I had read correctly what I thought I had read because um, you were pulling the rug a little bit from, from under our feet because you write, when I was eight, my mother died and Naomi arrived. And so, as we've already discussed, Naomi has uh, a brain hemorrhage and this completely throws her life and the life of her family and Edith's life uh, into a sort of a different, unexpected uh, trajectory. Um, I'm curious to hear you sort of reflect on the uh, relation, if you see any, between sort of a somebody who suffers from that kind of uh, internal uh, sort of cerebral devastation and the kind of devastation that a sort of a, a virus inflicts on society. Like, is there something, did you want with the novel to draw a kind of parallel between between those two? 
Yes, in some ways. And I think tracking back over my work, it has been a long interest, the idea of identity breakdown or civilization civilization breakdown. So Mm. that, uh, again, everything familiar and identifiable and safe uh, removes itself. And then then who are we? Who am I? Mm. How do we operate in that terrain? How do we build back from that? Um, And it was very interesting to think about that in relation to Naomi. because it's an extraordinary thing that does happen to people. You know, another beautiful novel released this year, uh, Lean Fall Stand by John McGregor, which tracks mm. through the recovery of someone who suffers a stroke. And um, and it really is extraordinary, the levels to which people have to relearn their lives and perhaps mm. never fully recover the identity that they may have um, known to be theirs earlier on. You become a new mm. person in some ways. Um, and I have always been interested in, in that idea, whether it's, uh, you know, the brain tumour that we see in the short story, Evie, um, or Mrs. Fox, who turns in mm-hmm. a lady who turns into a fox, literally. <laughs> and uh, h- how does everyone around these characters adjust and accommodate them? Can they or can they not? So it is a preoccupation of mine. Um, and a pandemic obviously strips away society as it's known may break down an emergency care system, particularly a, a worse pandemic, which the one in Burnt Coat is. It's it's more horrifying if that's possible than the one that we're going through now. Mm. Um and so yes, it's it's sort of um, a, a different playing field, but the same the same not game exactly, but the same preoccupation that I've had for a while. Yeah. And one and one way that or the, the kind of I guess the principal way that Naomi reacts after um the brain hemorrhage and after she begins her recovery and, uh, and, and the family kind of fractures is that she, um, well, you use the, the, the line, you said you write after her illness, she'd abandoned herself in the wild. So she takes Edith and they kind of go to this, um, this small cottage um, sort of in the, in the upland moors, kind of quite a, a, quite a long way from, from the nearest city and quite, quite isolated. Do you think there's something, um, about kind of the about nature and about the wild, which is more sort of accommodating to somebody who has been through something like what Naomi has been through and needs to 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 rebuild their their life and their sense of self again. I do think human beings often try to create an environment around them that somehow makes sense in relation to who they are, and so mm-hmm. I have known people who've been extremely ill. Uh, go to entirely different places um, because they feel more comfortable there. I do know somebody that that suffered um, a brain aneurysm and ended up in a tiny, tiny prefabricated cottage so far down a beach that the tide would come in under it. And it was almost mm. like like accepting fate, like saying, you know, okay, well, if I might be subject to another one of these things, if I'm living with a condition that means weakenings in my blood vessels, in my brain, might, might at any point mean... I will die. How is that somehow made sense of and reflected in my life? Well, okay, fine. Here I am. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the tides can come in under me. Any storm might might take me away. And uh, there is sense in it somehow. It almost seems like a, a logical decision and an extension of the way that we might decorate our houses because we have mm-hmm. a certain artistic sensibility or, or we might enjoy certain things and they, and they make sense to us. Um, it's an extreme version of it, but uh, I think in some ways appropriate. Mm. And it seems to also sort of, um, I think the proximity perhaps to life's or the cycle of life and death um, probably sort of in some way mirrors 
more closely what the what the person has been through. Once you have been confronted with your own mortality and the potential for your body to to go wrong and to collapse and to sort of decay, I suppose, and re-enter the the cycle of life. Like if you're if you're in a in a city where everything is <laughs> concreted over and preserved, and it's all about sort of uh, progress and 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 sort of I, I suppose transcending uh, a lot of the 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 cycles of nature. It must be it must be hard to to marry this new vision you have attained of the world with um, with life in the city. Yes, it could be, or or perhaps things go the other way, and and after an experience uh, so bad, perhaps just safety everywhere is is mm-hmm. what might be necessary. Um, being able to reach out to people, knowing that humanity is going on around you, um, mm-hmm. but certainly in the book, you're right. There is. Um, featured quite heavily in the book are these states of being, whether that's life and the the exertion of life and in a sort of s- sexual life force mm-hmm. or or an artistic life force, and then a decay, a decline. And at one point, you know, Edith in her, her latter life uh, joins with a group in Thailand um, watching a corpse decompose. She wants to mm-hmm. understand what an altered state of being is, the kind of physical nature of it. Um, and so there are these small passages in the book where where that comes to the fore, actually, that, mm-hmm. that sense of trying to understand that we are just matter. And I suppose I would categorize the book as somewhat humanist in its approach to life and death. Mm-hmm. Certainly, one of the relationships that Edith is having to come to terms with is the relationship with death, not mm-hmm. in a personified way. Um, and of course, you know, the history of art has personified death in order to try and help us understand death <laughs> as mm. a presence in our lives, whether that's the sort of, you know, the, the, the hooded, empty-faced uh, uh, creature with the scythe or, or whatever. But in this novel, death is just a void. Death is just mm. an altered state of being. It's where matter becomes a different kind of matter. Mm. Um, there is no afterlife necessarily. Uh, th- there's no religious questioning really in this book. It's more a kind of humanist questioning and an acceptance of this life and what this life affords us, uh, and mm. are coming to terms with possibly nothingness on the other side. Mm. And I, I, I guess that reconfiguration of the the representation of death is made more necessary by the situation that a pandemic presents. Like I think of all of the people who were denied the the ceremonies and the traditions and the the various types of human contact which normally take place around the the loss of a loved one and which in some way perhaps give meaning and structure or kind of consolidate the society's sense of of what it means to live and what it means to die once in the pandemic because of the the volume of people who are dying because of the 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 the, the nature in which they die and the uh, how contagious the the disease is all of that was stripped away and was sort of as you say sort of left this this void in which people um people had to try and forge then their own and a new understanding of of death that's absolutely right and i was certainly thinking about that while writing the book uh we were only a few twists of the dial away from mass death at home in some mm-hmm. ways which we've become quite unused to I think uh, in this mm. country and in the west generally where death is sort of removed and hospitalized and sanitized and and and, and given morphine um yes and I think so amplifying a pandemic certainly serves that purpose it does bring the idea of, of death closer to home and of course Edith has to deal with it head mm-hmm. on after after wondering about it her her whole life up to the point of the pandemic and 
really feeling like death might be a close presence because of her mother. I think at one point she describes death as like the ghost pavement in her mm-hmm. life. It sort of sets the perspective for the rest of it um, as, a, as a painter would use to create mm-hmm. perspective in a painting. Um, but I should also say, uh, I've been thinking about this more recently. Uh, very unfortunately, my father contracted COVID uh, last month and died. He had underlying conditions, but I, I also was COVID positive And very luckily, because we are now at that stage in this country uh, where we can access our loved ones in hospital, the hospital that he was in allowed me to visit although I was COVID positive, they, they did it in a very safe way and I'm be forever grateful for them. So I was with him when he died and it was hugely important. I hadn't realized just how meaningful that transition would be for me to be with him. Um, I was very scared that it might happen while I was there. Uh, in the end, it was not like I expected it to be and it was under controlled circumstances, but there was something incredibly beautiful and important and meaningful about it it of course it was upsetting but to see it and know it in that way I can't even describe why but it it sort of it's it's touched something in me that Mm. I I I didn't really realize was there and and I'm sure lots of people find that it's a way of processing perhaps it's a way of understanding and accepting um and I do think the all near misses and and the not near misses, the tragedies of the last almost two years now, have really brought it home to people. Um, the importance of their lives, the importance of the lives of others, the nature of death. They've had to think about it in ways that perhaps they hadn't, especially before the vaccine, when mm-hmm. it it might mean that if you'd contracted COVID, you could be incredibly ill, even if young. Mm-hmm. Um, even if fit and healthy, we didn't understand why. We still don't really. There is probably a genetic component, isn't there? But mm-hmm. um, And so all of a sudden, you're brought a bit closer to this situation, to the state of it. And I, I don't want to say it's no bad thing for humans, but mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, it shakes your tree. It really mm-hmm. does. And it's disturbing. But it is very important to think about because it's as for Edith, it's it's a sort of a, a permanent knowledge for human beings that we have yeah. and hold. And, and that sort of that is, comes back to that idea, I suppose, of like reconfiguration of uh, understanding and expectations that uh, one could consider oneself fortunate to have had the opportunity to be at the side of a of a loved one when they were passing away. Like I think probably before the pandemic, it was perhaps a lot of something which a lot of us just hadn't really reflected on mm, one yeah. way or the other um and sort of yeah recognizing that the, the these moments can be very important and very transformative um absolutely for us. absolutely and as you say the other the other rituals the other significant mm. parts of ceremony to do with death which which mm. people weren't perhaps able to have um just in terms of numbers at funerals i mean as i found out sadly recently uh, there's still a problem with undertakers dressing corpses that have had COVID Mm. you know morticians in hospitals Mm. have to do it um, instead and of course this is very important to people particularly in the west uh, where there's a sense that that would be the right thing for your loved one you know that you would uh, allow this final ceremony to happen with with the right attire Uh, Mm. I mean it it sounds like a very very simple thing and and it becomes very important in some ways and so you realize that the way that we do process death and 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 giving somebody over to to a new state of being is also incredibly important um and to have those things taken away to have to recreate 
them somehow or, or just to do without them, I think must have been absolutely heartbreaking for people mm. over the last period of time. I, I, mm. I can't imagine how people coped if just not being able to go into a hospital and hold the hand uh-huh. of somebody. Yeah, for sure. That um that that idea of um of ceremony um it feeds into um Edith's work as an artist um in a sense um but, but before we come on to talk specifically about her work I'm curious uh to hear about your process of thinking yourself into the mind of of a of a sculptor of a of a of, a, of, a, of an artist because obviously we've already said that Naomi was a writer and we could completely understand why you would have no difficulty thinking yourself into the mind of of a novelist. But one thing I found about Edith was that you, at least to somebody who is not a visual artist, it felt like a very convincing and very um, detailed representation of the the mind of uh, of a visual artist. Was it was it difficult to you, for you to to sort of transfer what you know about the artistic process through your writing? into a character who whose whose process and whose method is whose practice is um in, in some way uh, fundamentally different i don't think it was actually um and i've uh i've always considered myself without wanting to sound too grand or overly artistic uh to be a maker rather than a writer that's how mm. it's always felt to me I, I, and i i realized that building sentences with words it's very different from from physically constructing something with your hands, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Words have a kind of uh, builderly quality to me, and I always think I'm I'm making worlds. I might be doing it mm-hmm. imaginatively, but it, it feels more um, sensual in some mm-hmm. ways to me than than just doing that, than just thinking, than just putting down a string of words. It's really like having to to create something with so many dimensions so that that's one side of it the feeling Mm -hmm. that um and also I kind of find out musicality in writing as well so Mm -hmm. you know thinking about kind of music I don't think writing is that far removed from other art forms in some ways I I really Mm -hmm. don't I've never felt that um but also I have a degree in art history so I I, I'm quite familiar with the, the works of many artists and have many friends that are artists too and I've always been fascinated by process whether it is sculpting or painting mm. um that alchemy that that brilliant ability to build with the hands to sort of use the mind and and construct and I have made a few things over the years I'm not an artist but when I've been drawn to doing anything it has been more like building things rather than painting Mm. so probably deep down there is a part of me that would love to be able to do that (laughs) and it was so exciting for me to be able to think about these creations that Edith makes you know Hecky this huge Mm. burnt wood witch standing on a roadside junction so exhilarating to think about that and of course part of me is just dreaming and imagining that I'm, (laughs) I'm able to construct it myself um but it was also very important to uh put place Edith in an artistic field where it's quite unusual for women to be working so Mm. land artist sculptor making things of unusual size uh really ambitious you know I wanted her to take up space in that Mm -hmm. field I wanted her work to take up space in that field um because I I, you know I really like placing women in roles where they haven't traditionally uh had too many predecessors or, or or been allowed success and ambition um, and that was also exhilarating, the idea that 
she would be building the equivalent of the Angel of the North, but under mm. her own terms. Well, that's it. I mean, that's exactly what I what I had in mind. It was a sort of like a, um, a sort of a counter, almost a counterpoint to to the Angel of the yes, of the North in is. a way, the sort of the Witch of the North, I suppose. Yes, exactly, exactly right. And I love the Angel of the North. You know, I really mm. do. Um, I, I like the fact that it was controversial going up. I like the fact mm. that it's weathered in. I, I love that it's become part of the landscape, uh, and it's almost a kind of landmark. Now it is a landmark. You know, uh, these these creations they're often controversial going up. They're often provocative, and then they become mm. iconic. Uh, and there is that process. Of, of pushing people out of their comfort zone with art uh, and allowing them to kind of think their way around it, get used to it. And then finally, it becomes part of the cultural landscape. Um, mm. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, to create women characters that do that, that are not the wives and daughters of artists. Mm. They are the history makers and the creators. That's exciting to me. Mm. You, you said about artworks that are, are controversial. You used um, a term in the book, um, which, I, if I remember rightly, it was from uh, put into the mouth of the the woman who who funded Hecky, um, and she talks about uh, the artistic offence that becomes iconic. Exactly uh, right. Yeah, and and that 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 concept of artistic offence I found really interesting because I think, for example, perhaps in a way, a sort of a, a sculpture like Hecky. Um, is more resistant to um, offence than for a, potentially a book because if a if if a book pr provokes outrage provokes offence it might be a lot of people who will refuse to engage with it or will sort of set it aside mm. whereas this huge piece of 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 land art this huge sculpture um, it's 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 essentially unavoidable if you want to uh, travel yeah. anywhere in the, yeah. in the vicinity of it and exactly I, I was just curious could you to to hear you reflect a little bit more on that idea of artistic offence. Is it something which in some way drives drives your work? Yes, it is. And I would say, I would describe my work as political and fairly controversial, and it's certainly been divisive, mm. uh, whether mm. that's the stylized prose or more likely uh, and more usually content. You know, mm. writing about uh, female terrorists, female mm. fanaticists, female soldiers female wolf experts overseeing controversial reintroduction projects, uh, the farmer's daughter who attempts to blow up a dam in her mm. valley. You know, they're, they're women that are pushing uh, pushing the envelope. They're uh, pushing people forward into, into thinking about women in a different way or to thinking about society in a different way. You know, so often um, great male writers and artists have, have been afforded the luxury of being controversial without being punished often they were punished for it mm. too um or they rode a bit of turbulence and came out the other side as the kind of you know master of the the era <laughs> and I think women have have had less of that but I also think that if a woman is controversial there is extra attention in some ways and and, and often a kind of oh no 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 that's not your place to do that certainly not artistically mm. um so I think you look back through the history of art and, and it's everywhere. Those moments where somebody breaks with the past and says, mm, I can do that differently and probably better. And let's give this a go. And, and everyone in the salon is horrified. What do you mean Olympia has been turned into a prostitute? <laughs> uh, or dear God, he's actually painted real working class people. You know, <laughs> he's actually showing us the, uh, the ills of our society and the broken bodies of the people building our roads. You know, that controversy works to draw attention to something. And 
is responsible for for thought processes changing, cultural change, and even you know paying into societal change. Mm. And one way that I suppose that Edith um, is able to maybe sort of circumvent or or, or sort of transcend the limitations of are often placed on 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 women artists in in our society is through leaving our society and sort of and training in in Japan in fact um and that's and that's one thing i mentioned in the in the introduction is the technique that she that she learns now i'm probably going to mangle the pronunciation here but it's shusugi ban is that it yes your your pronunciation is as good as mine <laughs> okay <laughs> so this is the kind of the uh, the treatment the preservation the kind of the fossilization of would by the application of fire right yes absolutely yeah so you burn the top coat usually of cedar because it's it's quite receptive as a wood mm -hmm. to deep burning uh burn the top coat brush away the charcoal uh and keep brushing and then you reveal this beautiful grain underneath the grain keeps black um and so you get these amazing swirling patterns almost like stories uh, and you also end up with wood that has been waterproofed and is more resilient so you mm -hmm. kind of destroy the cells on the top coat um in order to make the wood uh sturdier and more durable um and you see a lot of uh panels in japanese buildings that uh, this technique has been used to create uh but also some art and sculpture as well and i, I just i love it as a technique um mm -hmm. just the the aesthetic of it is very pleasing to me but also the process is very interesting the process has significance it doesn't use chemicals for preserving, so it's very, you know, there's the fire aspect of it and the burning of wood, but it's it's more ecologically sound than than treating something with, say, creosote, um, mm. which you're not allowed to do anymore, only in certain circumstances. Uh, but also the idea that destroying something to make it stronger, you know, mm. when I was thinking my way through this book, thinking, all right, it's about resilience. How do we get through these terrible experiences and circumstances in life come out the other side and survive it well you kind of need to toughen up don't you and of course there it was this technique which exactly does that and it reflects mm. everything and of course it's attractive to Edith um and again I was kind of researching around new artists and and the way that they might be offered residencies abroad um and I like the idea that yes Edith would just sidestep the whole of British fine art Mm. end up in Japan training with a craftsman uh, and then use these techniques to create these amazing idiosyncratic works back home again. Uh, it seems just right on so many fronts, this technique. Mm. And obviously somebody else uh, in the in the book who has been through so much and perhaps been made stronger by it and who we, who we haven't yet talked about is uh, Halit. So this, um, because, you know, we've, we've talked about the virus, we've talked about illness, but in fact, this is also a love story, or at least a love story is uh, an important element of um, of Burnt Coat. And it's a very specific kind of love in a way. I mean, in my notes, I just sort of I just wrote love under lockdown. And uh, I was really fascinated by the um, I suppose the way that this very specific conditions imposed upon society and the people in it can transform the the way in which people meet get to know each other and fall in love that's right i mean we we've been hearing these stories haven't we of accelerated relationships mm. uh, thanks to covid um and i think with hallett and edith 
you know, the relationship begins and it's, it's, it's very physical. So, so it's a very physical relationship all the way through. And it is an accelerated relationship. In some ways, they go through a whole lifetime's worth of relationship uh, from heady lovers just enraptured by each other's bodies to uh, partners who have to work together and be very practical in a lockdown scenario to, you know, the caring for somebody who is sick later and, and mm. then dying. Um, and Hallett's body is, of course, the site of that. You know, he is the one that gets ill first, uh, extremely ill with this Nova virus, uh, which mm. creates this awful high fever. Again, going back to the kind of burning um, uh, the febrile mm. nature of, of of all the metaphors in the book, basically, and and all the features of the book. Um, so it was very important, I think, for them to have this form of relationship. I suppose what I wanted to do was put love through this burning process too, mm. in some ways. You know, very often. Uh, we're conditioned to think that uh, the kind of youthful, sexual, um, romantic love, perhaps tragic, is is the most wonderful, intense kind. And there's so much focus on it in art and literature and film. And actually, really, I mean, love in some ways strengthens and becomes more durable as as people stay together. And especially if they stay together through difficult circumstances, mm. and especially if one of them has to become a carer. I mean... I watched my dad operate this way with my mom. He had no training whatsoever, but he cared for my mom and under very difficult circumstances when she was ill and dying. And I think this was very unexpected. You know, uh, he found unexpected capacity within in, within himself. And I was fascinated by that and, and mm. really sort of commended it at the time. And I like that idea, the fact that the greatest form of love might be the one later that has been really tested. It's come through mm -hmm. fire. And at the end, it, it exists in a kind of spectacular, indestructible way. Mm. And that's um, something I think is the final thing we'll have time to talk about. But is that sense of sort of what is... What I guess what is what is left when the when the when the fire has passed? What um you know the sort of the the aftertimes, um I suppose, which uh, I think we were all perhaps hoping that we were we were moving into um in mm. uh, in in recent weeks, and then just with the arrival of Omicron in recent days, we've yeah. uh, we've been uh, thrown straight back into the fire, I suppose. But there is a lot in the book about um. What yeah, what is left behind? How society gets back on its feet, and whether the old ways return or mm. not. And it struck me as a very sort of you strike a very subtle balance between uh, the old ways returning because we're humans and that's what we do, but also those ways returning. Though us humans returning scarred, I suppose, and the sort of the the chemistry between those two things, between our kind of natural human urges to to get everything back to normal, supposedly, and having to do so, carrying the the scars and the damage that we uh, that were inflicted on us. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think you know this is a really quite a short novel. I was I was aiming for this sort of petite, powerful uh, mm. novel, or I'm not quite sure what the, the French phrase. There will be some <laughs> amazing French phrase that exactly <laughs> nails what this form of short power book is hoping to do. Um, but I think there's space towards the the end of the novel for for readers to really think about aftermath. 
because mm. we don't really know yet, do we, what the aftermath of COVID will be if there is an aftermath. You know, mm. there were, things will quieten around it and, and, and we will accommodate it uh, and something else will come along to, to sort of, you know, take the full attention. But um, that sort of quiet period of the unknown doesn't take up much space at the end of this novel. And, and I really was wanting the reader to kind of bring in their thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. Edith does make make adjustments in her life. You know, she lives in some ways a quieter, more reclusive life. She does things like give up flying, give up meat and, and tries to make better decisions and tries to sort of respond to catastrophe, um, maybe reconnect with family that she had disconnected from. Uh, but I suppose it's for every individual to sort of consider that themselves. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I do know that I've always found scars fascinating and beautiful. As you say, mm. you emerge through trauma, difficulty, accident, not unscathed. And so you bear the marks psychologically and sometimes bodily. And there's a lovely moment in the book. It's one of my favourite moments in the book where Hallett and Edith are first exploring each other's bodies. And he has multiple scars on his torso from various Mm. things, appendix, you know, um, collapsed lung, uh, emergency surgery. And he tries to hide them as a new lover might, thinking that they're imperfection and uh, thinking that they're imperfections. And Edith says, please don't lift your arm. Let me see. And I love that because that's something that I feel quite strongly that scars in some way show survival. You know, they show Mm. prowess. They show an ability to come through that and live. And not only that, to sort of show that you've been through that and live. And and there's far more meaning to them than we give credit. There's far more beauty to them than we often give credit. Uh, And that is important, the idea that what remains after is precious it's more precious you know it's damaged but it's more precious um and i think that notion is held right through to the end of the book mm-hmm. uh shun uh edith's um tutor in japan gives her this amazing lesson while she's burning the wood afterwards when everything's cooled and brushed and polished and and looks beautiful he he puts one drop of water on the top of the burnt wood to show that it's now waterproof and this water sits there in this perfect bead you know Mm. just just this beautiful small thing refracting the whole world and um and so without it being spoiler you know I wanted to sort of end the book on that that idea that yes after this raising of everything this recreating of everything there is there is just this this beautiful thing of life that's left that's Mm. what's left that seems like the perfect place for which uh, for us to, to leave it on today. Um, Burnt Coat is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our website and from your um, local neighborhood bookstore, wherever you may be listening to this. Um, Sarah Hall, all that remains for me to say is thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.